it's really the, uh, that's really the vision of our series. And the vision of our series is more. Um, one of the really encouraging um, comment that I received um, is I was talking to one of our new members. We just had a new membership class. And, um, and I was just asking them just off, off line what was the most encouraging thing um, uh, that he's had since being a part of Hope. And he simply said this. He said, Hope has really helped me to believe that there's more. And I think that's really the crux of everything that God really has in store for us. He's not calling us to be complacent. He's not calling us to just be satisfied. But, oh, we need more of God. And we have seen that he has given so much of us to him that he is glory and his goodness is bigger and better. Um, it's bigger than we can ever know and fully comprehend. And Jesus is truly better in that he is on the move to exceedingly do more and above what we ask or think. And so that's really the, the, the premise is that of this book and about our series is that we're just really praying with Paul um, God, will you just do more for your glory? Will you do more of us and show us more who you are to show us how big your gospel and your heart for us is and that we would see that you are infinitely better than all the treasures um, of this world. We want you to dare to believe that there's more to the heart of God. There's more that God is doing. He is on the move, an unstoppable move under Christ. And he's redeeming all heaven and earth uh, underneath him. And he's just an amazing God. And he will not stop. Um, and he just delights in us. He's also a, a God who just delights in us because there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to perform um, for God's grace. God's heart for you is already rich. It's already generous. And it's already gracious. And he just offers to you himself. And just our heart is that you would simply dare to receive that. And when you do, you're not going to spin your own wheels. You don't have to wonder if you're performing enough because you are in Christ. And your power comes from just being in a triune God whose heart is bigger and better for you. And uh, just what Ephesians is calling all of us is that we would believe in the more. And so um, just as I was listening um, to this and uh, to uh, community groups, as even Emily Dunn was sharing um, at community groups, I was just so reminded that that's what the Lord's heart for us is. Um, and yet, we have all these perfect plans in our head, but as Jake mentioned, we're not a perfect church. Um, and we just have this idea that we have to be this perfect church uh, with absolutely no problems and that there's just a very smooth roadmap in which everything kind of goes according to plan. Uh, last month, I actually had that example in which we were deciding to do some gardening and we, uh, we had some garden beds that we had, but we were just maxed out. And Christy was like, let's go and let's do another one um, and let's do some, some other ones. And my heart was 
to really make um, the garden a refuge rather than a jungle, which it was. And so um, Christine said, hey, how, many, how much time do you need to do this before you know, we start planting? And, and so she gave me two weeks. So I said, okay, no problems. So um, no problem, this is gonna go totally smoothly. I had watched several episodes of Homegrown. Um, I've had previous gardening experience. Um, we sketched out this great plan together. No problems, right? Oh, there were problems. <laughs> well, there's problems in leveling out the dirt. There was a lot of dirt and a lot of tree roots that were hard. In the midst of it, I broke a pipe, and all of a sudden, it looked like Disneyland in which water was spraying out in all directions. And then I was like, okay, it's going to be easy to get the wood, but that wood wasn't available. Um, simply put, we got it done, but it didn't go um, as well as I thought it would be. And that's where Ephesians is. It's, this local church is actually not the model church. In fact, it's far from it. When we read the opening of Ephesians, it's easy to say this is ideal church, a perfect model to aspire to. But actually, it was probably like me in, and, 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 and just trying to figure out what to do with leaky pipes and just needing others to be able to help connect and bridge these pipes. As a pastor... And writer Eugene Peterson says about Ephesians, he says, Ephesians is the best text in the entire Bible for getting us in on what is involved behind the scenes in our congregations as we grow up healthy in God, robust in love. And so this book is rich, not so much in that it encapsulates the perfect church no, it actually starts with the church that actually is going through growth. And it's so rich and it's so amazing because it starts with a not-so-model not apostle that actually penned it. So in our text today, as we're going to do a little intro of the book, um, we're going to see three things. Um, not your model apostle. We're going to talk about the author Paul, who wrote the book, and then we're going to talk about the model community of Ephesus, and then we're going to see uh, the one that causes the growth and uh, just the theme of the letter. So let's dive in, and let me pray for us uh, one more time. God, we just need your help in hearing from your word. I pray that even now that you would take out any distractions, anything that might be hindering us, oh God so that we can truly believe that you have more for, for us as a church family and as an individual. Thank you, God, for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you guys look at Ephesians chapter 1, from the opening paragraph, we see that Paul um, introduces himself as the apostle of Christ Jesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Um, and so when you look at the prologue of uh, epistles, it follows the regular Pauline pattern with its three elements, the sender, the recipients, and the greeting. And at first glance, this may not jump out right away, but it's kind of counterintuitive. Paul is writing a letter, and you would think that he's going to ask about um, the people he's writing to. But we see the opposite. 
when we write a, a letter uh, to somebody, we don't usually talk about ourselves right away. We address the uh, recipient. But here, Paul is actually saying, hi, my name is Paul, and I'm an apostle called by Christ Jesus. And we don't normally do that. And so is Paul just being um, prideful or boasting about his credentials? What we see here is that Paul's apostleship was not based out of his own works, but solely through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip over just to the book right before this in Galatians chapter 1, for example, and we see this is pretty generally consistent uh, throughout his epistles, we see that Paul introduces himself not because he was some great an amazing person, but with a stunning sense that everything, all the calling that he had was that he received was by direct revelation through Jesus and God. In verse one, he reads, he writes, Paul and apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Then you skip over to verse 11 through 16. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is or by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And so, see, we see that Paul has this deep and affectious um, reminder that he was a persecutor, that he had spent his life trying to destroy the church of God. And in verse, ni in verse um, 19, he displays uh, this deep humility of just reflecting about his personal conversion. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, th it does say something. When you have been somewhere, and God has taken you from an incredibly difficult and dark place, Paul probably had nightmares in his head in which he had dragged people off to prison. He had sent Christians to the lions. And many of them were dragged to prison and never came back. I'm sure he was, he probably knew that he had separated families, he had separated um, people, he had persecuted the family of God. It was just in his mind because he rewrote it. And yet Paul here, he says that I'm an apostle, not because I was a good man before, but by the will of God, simply because of God's unstoppable grace for me. And what we see is that even after his conversion, Paul didn't just come out and start um, preaching to the masses. In fact, we see that a few years after his conversion, Paul did not consult with anyone. If you go back to verse 16 and 17, he says he did not consult with anyone. But for um, 
Several years, he went into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then after three years, that's when he went up to Jerusalem, to Cephas, and um, who is Peter, and the other apostles. And he saw nobody except for James the apostle because in his mind, he was so conscious that he was a Christian killer. He was um, a persecutor. And only until then, when the, the leaders of the church had conferred the right hand of fellowship to Paul, in a sense, saying that and extending that, that fellowship to him. Only after that, Paul just couldn't get over the fact that he was called by God. He only saw himself not in the old man, but in the new. He saw himself as one who has been transformed and changed and called out as an apostle or a sent one in Jesus Christ. And that changed everything for him. So much so that it, that boldness eventually landed him in prison, Roman house arrest in 80-61-62, and this is about the period of time in which his desire was to encourage the community at Ephesus. So just think to yourself, if you think that this is penned by some, um, some saint, some perfect guy who had it all together, this was penned by your not-so-model apostle the Apostle Paul. And now he's writing to you the not your model community, the church at Ephesus. So if you would turn back to Ephesians chapter one and then take a look at the second half of verse one. He writes this, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What we see here is that the saints who are in Ephesus are largely gonna be uh, Gentile Christians, uh, meaning those who are non-Jews, and they had put their faith um, earlier in Jesus, probably right around the time when, when Paul actually came um, to preach to them and pastor them. And, um, but what it all could, also could mean, it doesn't, doesn't give it like a very straight, you know, stiff arm approach. It probably also re- referred to also some Jews who were living culturally like Gentiles. They hadn't been circumcised until they had a life-changing experience with the gospel. They were changed. They joined Paul's ministry. They were circumcised, and they started uh, ministering with Paul, kind of like with Timothy. A little background on the city of Ephesus. Um, just a few things. Uh, the, the one thing that you want to know is that it was the gateway of the Roman province of Asia in which it was the capital. It numbered about 250,000 people. It was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. You could even say that, uh, that, that it was the Asia Minor metropolis, um, kind of like the Dallas-Fort Worth-Arlington metroplex. Um, And so what you want to see is that it was a gateway, a hub to a lot of other places, a lot of other cities. It was also a city popular for occult practices. And you can read that in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, where a people who believed in Jesus had come out not out of um, anything worse than witchcraft and occult practices and magic. And so if you see that and you see that... um, In Acts 19, after they turned to Jesus as a result of the preaching of the gospel, they burned their books containing occult practices, and that amounted to a quite exorbitant amount. So it was a a metroplex. It was a city popular for occult practices. But most significantly of all, it was the idol capital of the ancient world. It was so common that people would worship up to about 50 gods or goddesses on a typical, you know, on a typical, uh, typical spectrum. 
And so it was home to this temple of so many gods and goddesses on top of having the biggest temple, and that was to the temple of the Greek goddess Diana, um, Artemis in Greek, who was the goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. And as you can see from the picture, this temple was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, just to give you a picture, when you're looking at that picture, American football field, uh, think about a football field from one end zone to another. And that's how big it was. It was the largest structure in the ancient world to be God who was considered the queen of heaven, the savior, and the one who controlled the underworld. She was seen as someone that came down from heaven to save them. So that's why you see this language where Jesus Christ is seated far above the right hand in the heavenly places, and he is above all. And you see this is a direct affront to Diana's sovereignty. And you'd see that because this is no idol just to scoff at, this was the idol capital of the world, and this was the goddess of that world. And so what you see here is that even despite their metroplex and despite being the idol capital of the world, the gospel grew in the midst of all this, and the church was faithful. And that's why it's pretty amazing that Ephesians was actually not written to counter any false teaching. The Ephesians letter is actually unique in that it's the only one that's not provoked explicitly by some problem, whether of behavior or belief. So sometimes I think we are um, prone to look at this Ephesians church and say, man, they had it all together. They're probably quoting scripture to each other left and right. They were probably wearing all white robes. <laughs> they were like saints, right? I mean, it even says this, that they were saints who were in Ephesus. And we think to ourselves, Ephesians, man, they were just the ideal church, right? Well, Paul had no illusions. And he described the Corinthian church, in fact, in the same way. And yet he had no illusions about the fact that, that these guys, they had some issues. Um, and they, they had some issues regarding purity, immorality, and they had struggles. And so that's where you look more in the scriptures that Ephesians wasn't the model church. If you turn to 1 Timothy uh, 1, 6 through 7, um, if you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, you'll see that Ephesians had a couple things going on. One, they were a squabbling church. They were a fighting church. They were argumentative. They were engaged in a lot of silly talk. Verse 6 and 7. Um, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain discussion, desiring to be the teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In chapter 4, verse 7, they were guilty of being turned away by myths and old wives' tales. And in fact, in chapter 5, verse 15, some of them have been turned away um, to stray and follow after Satan. Chapter 5, verse 15, which is probably a reference to the spiritual powers that are at play and that's prevalent here in the book of Ephesians. And as Eugene Peterson says, they were, in short, a squabbling congregation. This does not sound like a mature or a healthy church. So it was a fighting church. Number two, Ephesians was also a loveless church. If 
you turn to Rome, Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, about 20 or 30 years later, after Paul had moved on uh, from pastoring the church at Ephesus for three years, they had gone through a time of persecution where Christians were waving, literally um, just wavering between life and death because they were being blamed by the great fire and they were, um, that uh, was actually started by Nero, and they were being scapegoated and persecuted daily. And so in the midst of all this, John has this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the vision of saying that all that you see is not going to continue. This is all not reality, and that all these things are still being used, and all things will go to the end of my kingdom. And Ephesus was actually the first of the seven churches that were addressed in Revelation. Revelation 2, verse 4 but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They were commended for being faithful, standing against um, evil, standing against people who would come in and try to, the wolves, to try to lead people astray. But there was one thing that Jesus had against them. They had simply lost their first love. And they needed, and then they were burst out into following myths and genealogies and contending against one another instead of contending for the gospel. And then it was so bad that they needed a mediator. They needed another pastor to be, uh, to be sent in, Timothy, to, to try to bring health to their community. And in short, they were not a model church, and they needed to grow. And while... I think we, this kind of spoke to me in which we sometimes get caught up in this search for a perfect church, a search for an ideal church that lines up in all possible ways, meaning a church that looks and feels and thinks like the way that I want to see church. And I don't think, in the point of Ephesians, that there's no church like that. And we're going to squabble, we're going to contend against one another, church is going to be so, and is, messy many times. And we're all people, though, who need, because we see the very lowest of ourselves, we see the sinfulness of ourselves, we also see how much we need Jesus. And Ephesians is kind of a look under the hood and saying, this is how you grow to be the bride that God has called you to. Yes, I've set you apart for God, just as Paul has been set apart, but I'm still remaking the old man. I'm still remaking the old woman. I'm still making this new and making a new creation out of you. And that's why Paul calls them the faithful in Christ Jesus. It doesn't make, make it that they're perfect. It doesn't lead to just this one-time decision that you made to Jesus when you're five or when you were 13 or 25. It's talking about a faith that's even deeper than that. And in fact, it's not even talking about necessarily our faith. The key of looking at this is that these words, in Christ, in Christ, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
And you'll see the in Christ refrain repeated over and over. Is this this, that because of Jesus, he has transported us into a new position, a new state of existence. It's like saying, you know, your life has been turned upside down. And in the same way, our lives have been turned upside down because Christ has brought us in. He's changed our whole sphere of being, our whole existence. And now because it's solely because of what God has done in Jesus dying and raising from the dead, being exalted above all heavenly powers, we are simultaneously in Ephesus or in Houston, and we are also in Christ. And we are simultaneously growing into what that means means that it's not going to be filled, our churches, are in, and we're not going to be perfect people. We're not going to have a perfect make of, of people, and we're, things are not going to go perfectly the way that we've planned it, but the fact that we are in Christ matters. Amen. Isn't that awesome that Ephesians is not the perfect church? Praise God, there's the hope for the rest for me. There's hope for the rest of all of us, but it's really the best church to find out on the ground level what it takes to grow in love as one community together. And so that's the message behind Ephesians. It's not about us. It's about a great, our gracious God who invites us to more. Turn to verse two in Ephesians. And Paul always has a deeper purpose to his words. And here he just redefines a very, um, just generic greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes this customary greeting and he flips it and he puts new meaning. He brings new fresh air into it. First, he says that grace, it's all of God's initiative. It's all of his initiative to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus and raising us up to a new community and bringing us in to each other into a new community and bringing us peace. And so in one Two, actually, two words, grace and peace. He's referring to everything he's done cosmically, eternally, to make us in Christ. In fact, we've received much more than we've ever imagined. It's all by his gracious initiative. And that's why Ephesians starts with grace and peace, and it ends with grace and peace. If you look at the very end of Ephesians, we see Paul closes with peace in reverse order, he starts with peace and then grace. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And this points back to the, the threads of what we see that are running through Ephesians. The two threads are two cords of reconciliation, of bringing two things that are far and utterly running away from each other into one. And the first one is that thread is the new heavens and the new earth. Um, you see that in verses 10, 9 and 10 in chapter 1, but you see that this heaven and earth theme, it's showing that Jesus had more than mind than just saving us. He wants to redeem all of heaven and earth. We've been dislocated from God's plan. We were lost and dead in our sin, and we needed a work to bring restoration to that rupture. And that's where the miracle of God comes in. Even though we were dead, fallen, 
and alone in our sins. <laughs> in love, God's immeasurable riches of his grace broken to our sinful and dark and lonely states, reconciled us back to God himself through Jesus Christ, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died to reconcile all things to himself, not only us, but all of the rebellious powers, all that in creation. He said, I'm gonna reconcile all these things into the heavens and the earth. And the second chord that's woven in Ephesians is that God not only reconciled God to man, but he reconciled man to man. He reconciled um, the Jew and the Gentiles. You think about Russia and Ukraine finally fighting a war that has gone on for over a year now. Think about North Korea against South Korea. And, and um, just recently, we saw North Korea shoot off a missile right before like a senator or a person from South Korea, Representative Kane. Um, and it was just, you just see the irreconciliation between two people. And that's what was going on in the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why the book of Ephesians talks not only about the new creation on a vertical level, but also in terms of bringing peace to people who are utterly opposed. We see three times this new creation language being applied to the new creation of people who were apart from each other, but yet are being brought together as a new community. And not just new community to coexist, not new community to just uh, let bygones be bygones, but to walk together in love as co-heirs of Christ. So we see a beautiful um, just unity coming from a vertical and a horizontal level. And that's where I would say about the main message of Ephesians. A gracious God unites a divided creation through a new community. And that's what Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 tells us. It says that the bigot plan is that making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. As one commentator put it, the church is God's pilot program for a reconciled universe. And you're kind of like thinking to yourself, how can the church now be a pilot program? That's not the first word that I would say about the church. A pilot program of what actually is going to be, going to be reality in the world? You think about the scandals, you think about the issues, you think about the division in our churches today. The last thing we think about is that the church is going to be the church that unites God's purpose and unites heaven and earth and also unites people. And that's what's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's the crazy thing is that God in his wisdom wanted to use regular, sinful, broken, messed up, yet redeemed, new, beloved, grace given and grace overflowing people beauty of his, of his plan. You cannot dream that up. And nothing's going to stop that plan. God is beautifying and sanctifying the body as a bride through the washing of the water by the word. And he is making us beautiful. 
because he wants to make the world united and beautiful. And so my challenge today, as we're looking through Ephesians and as we dive deeper in, is that we don't idealize the church to make the church what we want it to look like, but we simply take a long look at the church and love her for who she is. Um, as Eugene Peterson said, said, said this, the church we want becomes the enemy of the church we have. God is not saying that we, that whenever you say you want something in a church, that's sinful. It's just saying this, that God is not saying that you're going to have an ideal, perfect, amazing, spot on, everything flows naturally type of church. Church is going to be filled with good times and joys, and it'll be filled with lower times. But yet, in the midst of all that, remember God is making for himself a church. The church is for him. The church is for his glory, and it's through him. And it's not our ideas to make our church the ideal church, but God says through Ephesians, love your church. The church is a miracle. We don't get to choose the members of our churches. Um, only the Holy Spirit does. And so take a look at your church, the lukewarm and the hot, the saint and the sinner, the Republican and the Democrat or a Libertarian or none or neither, the ex-gang member and the recovering evangelical, the liberal, the conservative, um, the, the white, the black, the Asian. Learn to love them as the church and surrender our romanticized versions of it. Take a deep, long look at the grace and the love and the peace of Jesus Christ and know that God is stopping at nothing to make the church beautiful. We have a gracious God who can change everything, even our messiness. And if we knew what his heart looked like, we would just say, God, you have so much more for us. God, in spite of the mess, you are making this mess beautiful in your time. And God, give us more of yourself and more of your presence. I want to invite the prayer team to come up. And um, as we're just thinking through this, I just um, had an image um, as I was just praying about God's heart and so thankful for um, Randy speaking into this, just looking back and just look, love for us to take a look at the heart of God um, today. Um, Micah, um, he's my youngest. He is our smallest, but he eats the most. And there's like no end to his stomach. And so he's like constantly, we gave him like a banana, we gave him this, we gave him that, and it's like he's still going. And he's just like, Believing, and this is what he's doing, he's just saying, more, 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 more. And we're just like, Lord, like we we have we just gave you all these things, and and yet like our heart is just to say, like he in, in his own childlike heart, he's just asking for more. <laughs> because in his heart of hearts, he doesn't know much, but he believes that there's more in the pantry. He's seen it. <laughs> in fact, he goes to it, he opens the door, and he's like, hey. There's a lot of crackers in here. There's some cookies in here. I think you're kind of holding on on me. And, um, and he just, just reminded me of just that we just need to be the same. Sometimes I think we get so used to getting everything. We forget about 
We've forgotten how to ask with a belief that God wants us to ask for more. So if you would, if you just be where you, wherever you are and um, just pray, spend some time with the Lord and just kind of dialogue with him on these questions. Where do you need to surrender to Jesus, the church you want, to love the church you have? Is God calling you to forgive somebody? Is God calling you to confront somebody? Is God calling you to accept somebody? Knowing that God wants you to love the church you have. What areas in which I wish the church was a certain way and maybe that's just an area which you can, you've been holding on too tightly to holding control and just asking God to surrender those things. Then in your space of your heart, just ask Jesus, God, where do you, God, I want so badly to believe it. I've heard it. I know it. Lord, I, I need your grace and your peace to break in to help me believe that you're calling me, calling our church to more. And so we want to invite anybody who needs prayer. Come on up. Receive prayer for any of these things or anything else that's on your heart. And continue to dialogue with the Lord as you spend some time and as we close out in a time of worship.